Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Darby. And we think you deserve to understand the Oristaya. So these two nerds are going to tell you about it. So grab your snacks and get ready to Oristaya and Chill. So here's what's going to happen. Each episode, we are going to summarize a play from the Oristaya, and then we're going to talk to a fancy person about it. On this episode, we're summarizing The Libation Bearers. Or Women at the Graveside. Same play, different title. And our fancy person is Dr. Andromache Karanika, Associate Professor at the University of California, Irvine. If you don't need a summary of the play, feel free to skip ahead. Scene 1. The scene opens at Agamemnon's tomb. Orestes, Agamemnon's son, stands by the grave with his companion Pylades. Reminder that Orestes has spent his childhood in exile, and now, as a grown man, has returned seeking to avenge his father's murder. But also, the murder of a father obligates the son to seek revenge, so he has to do it, whether he wants to or not. Orestes prays to Hermes, that's the guide of the underworld, to give him strength to carry this out. He then cuts two locks of his hair and places them by the tomb, one as a token of gratitude to his father for giving him life, and the other as a token of his grief. As he vows to avenge his father's death, a chorus of unknown women in mourning approach the site. As they get closer, Orestes recognizes his older sister Electra among them. Although Electra walks with the women, Orestes and Pylades don't know if they'll be welcome. Remember, they're here to kill the ruling monarchs of Argos. So they decide to play it safe. They hide behind a bush and watch. The chorus sings at the grave. In this song, we learn that... Number one, the chorus women are slaves, specifically prisoners of war. Although they do not say so here, there are hints that Agamemnon brought them back from Troy. Number two, the reason they hide their faces behind their cloaks is to hide their disapproval of their owners. Number three, and they pray for justice. For Agamemnon? Electra definitely is. As for the chorus, possibly, but not necessarily. It could be for the city, or for someone we haven't met yet. The text that would clarify this is missing. Fun fact! Like many other Greek works, pages from this play have been lost in history. Scene 2 At the graveside, Electra takes the floor. She asks the chorus to advise her on what words to say as she pours libations. By the way, this was a traditional part of Greek funerary practice. She doesn't have the heart to say that the libations come from his loving widow, who, reminder, killed him in the tub. And she doesn't want to simply regurgitate customary words because that feels insincere. She wonders if she should pour the libations silently, which would be disrespectful, matching the way that Agamemnon died. The chorus suggests Electra speak the words of their allies, 
meaning anyone who hates Aegisthus. That's Clytemnestra's lover and co-ruler, by the way. So they name Orestes, who as far as they know has been in exile abroad and has definitely not been hiding behind a bush since their arrival and listening to their conversation. Well, if it weren't for the amount of bloodshed, this would be farcical. The chorus also advises Electra to pray for the murder of her father's murderers. This is an eye for an eye sort of world. She takes this advice and prays to Hermes, the guide of the underworld. Aw, just like her brother! Then she addresses her father down in the underworld and prays that he send Orestes back home to carry out the revenge. Well, that's convenient. Electra and the chorus pour libations on the grave as they sing lamentations. FYI, in the Greek world, female lamentation often incited male violence and fueled cycles of revenge. Scene 3. We're still at the graveside, the libations have been poured, and Electra notices Orestes' locks of hair. The locks look so much like her own that she concludes they belong to her brother who either has returned or has sent them. Quick question. Would you recognize your brother's hair if you found it on the ground? Like, just think about that for a minute. I wouldn't even recognize my own. Sadness and anguish consume Electra. She's convinced it's a lock of her brother's hair. She can't imagine her killer mother, yes, that is what she called her, could have cut the locks of her children's hair. Then she sees footprints that resemble hers, adding to her suspicion that Orestes was there. Okay, the hair was one thing, but this is seriously pushing it. Like, does she have a DNA kit? Aren't they wearing shoes? Do they own the same shoes? Who's to say? Orestes emerges from his hiding place. The last time Electra saw him was before puberty, so naturally, she doesn't recognize him. So Orestes is like, So the lock of hair and footprint are more proof of my identity than my face? To prove his identity, Orestes shows Electra cloth she wove for him back in their childhood. It was adorned with a picture of a lion. Cute, huh? This is sufficient proof for Electra. The siblings embrace and pray to Zeus to help them on their revenge quest. That's a good name for a band. The chorus tells them to quiet down and be discreet. Orestes says he has been commanded by an oracle from Apollo to kill his father's killers or else pay with his own life and suffer many tortures that he gets very graphic about. Think greedy cankers of flesh that eat at healthy tissue. Ew. But that's not why Orestes wants vengeance. He wants it because it's not right that the good people of Argos, who conquered Troy after all, be subjected to a, quote, pair of women. Um, what? Wait, is he saying that Aegisthus is a woman because being a woman is an insult? Pretty much. Delightful. Scene four. We're still at the graveside. Well, it's called Women at the Graveside, so we're going to be here for a while. The chorus pray to the fates, or Moirai, depending upon the translation. Because lots of things have lots of names around here. That justice be served the way Zeus would have it, which is, quote, deadly blows for deadly blows. So, the very mature eye for an eye, or tit for tat. And rest assured, they will repeat this a few times during the scene. Orestes expresses that he wishes that Agamemnon had been killed at enemy hands at Troy, rather than by his own wife because that would have been an honorable death. But also, Orestes would not be responsible to avenge Agamemnon if he had died in battle. While Electra wishes that he hadn't been killed at all, but rather that the, quote, murderous pair, meaning her mom and stepdad, had gone to a faraway land together and died. The chorus replies that this would be swell, but it's just wishful thinking, so get back to work, kids. 
Eventually, all these prayers spur Orestes to devise a concrete plan to kill his mother, Clytemnestra. Note that the chorus heartily encourages this plan. Scene 5. Guess where we are? Yep, still at the grave. Orestes and Electra continue lamenting and invoking their father's spirit to help them on their quest for vengeance. The chorus leader pipes up and tells them to stop talking and get to action. Thank you! Orestes replies that first, he has to know why Clytemnestra sent the chorus and Electra to pour libations on Agamemnon's grave that day. The chorus leader says that it's because that night, Clytemnestra dreamt that she gave birth to a snake. Ew. Oh, it gets worse. She then had to breastfeed the newborn snake. Ew. And as she was feeding it, it sucked out, quote, clots of blood mixed with her milk. See? Told you. Uh. So basically, Clytemnestra woke up feeling guilty after that dream and sent the chorus to the grave with libation. Orestes offers his own interpretation of this dream. He believes the dream to be prophetic, and that he, having been born of Clytemnestra, is the snake who fed from her and will now kill her. The chorus approves of this omen and gives Orestes the floor to tell everyone the plan, which is... Number one, Electra and the chorus are to go home and keep the secret. Orestes is to go to the palace with Pylades afterward. Oh yeah, remember Orestes' friend Pylades? He's been there this entire time. And number two, Orestes and Pylades are going to stay outside by the gates until the coast is clear and they can go in. Once they're in, Orestes will kill Aegisthus with his sword before he even says a word to him. They all agree on the plan and Orestes and Pylades take off. Go team, go! The chorus stays behind and sings a song claiming that there are many dangerous creatures in the world but humans are the worst. Then, they provide examples of this. There is Altea, who killed her son. Then there is Scylla, who killed her dad. Well, Scylla wasn't really human, was she? Actually, she was a human who was turned into a sea monster after she caused the destruction of a city called Megara. And of course, the women of Lemnos, who murdered their husbands because they were sleeping with other people. But the absolute worst is Clytemnestra for killing her war hero husband and sleeping with another man. In conclusion, Clytemnestra is getting what's coming to her. Scene 6. Orestes and Pylades arrive at the palace and meet Clytemnestra, who doesn't recognize her son. Orestes claims to be coming from Phocis, bearing the sad news that Orestes is dead. Clytemnestra is understandably grief-stricken at the news, and asks her slaves to show Orestes and Pylades to their rooms to provide them with a comfortable stay. The chorus then sings a short prayer in support of Orestes' quest. Wait, when did they get there? Did they follow Orestes to the palace, or do they just, like, materialize? It's unclear. Scene 7. The chorus leader sees Cilissa, that's Orestes' old nursemaid, coming out of the palace in distress, so she asks her what's going on. Cilissa says she's going to fetch Aegisthus on behalf of Clytemnestra to give him the news and take him to meet the strangers. The chorus leader asks her not to deliver the news, just to tell him to go meet the strangers and that Zeus will take care of the rest. Cilissa is hesitant, but agrees and goes off to get Aegisthus. The scene ends with the chorus engaging in another song in support of Orestes. Scene 8 Aegisthus is by himself, questioning whether the news of Orestes' death is true. The chorus tells him, Hold on, wasn't he by himself? The chorus is always around. The chorus advises him to go meet the visitors and find out for himself, so off he goes. 
And of course, there's a choral song praying for Orestes' victory. You know, in case it was unclear after the first two songs who they were rooting for. Scene 9. A death cry is heard from inside the palace. The chorus leader asks a slave what's going on, and the slave replies that Aegisthus has been murdered. Clytemnestra enters, asking what is going on, and is told the news. The slave tells her that, quote, the dead are slaughtering the living. Now, Clytemnestra is clever enough to realize this means that Orestes is coming for her. She asks to be brought an axe good to, quote, kill a man, as she fears she might be next. Orestes and Pylades show up, and for some reason, Clytemnestra recognizes her son this time, even though he hasn't changed in the last five minutes, and declares her love for her deceased lover, Aegisthus. Orestes says she'll have to lie next to Aegisthus, the implication being that he's going to kill her too. So naturally, Clytemnestra bears her breast, you know, as one does. Wait, is it just the one? The reason for this is so she can invoke the memory of him being nourished from it as an infant, and have him face the fact that he's about to kill his own mother who gave him life. Orestes turns to Pylades for advice. Pylades basically reminds him that Apollo told him to do it, so he has to do it. Well, that's interesting. He thanked his father for giving him life a few scenes ago, but the same argument doesn't seem to have any value coming from mom. Orestes takes Clytemnestra away so he can kill her next to Aegisthus. She protests, invoking their relationship, to which Orestes replied that she killed his father and so she had this coming. And off stage they go. The chorus ends this scene with a song confirming that Orestes is in fact killing his mother and he will emerge as the ruler of the house. Scene 10. Orestes stands over the dead bodies of Clytemnestra and Aegisthus, holding a sword and an olive bough. He declares that his deeds are justified by Apollo, but must now leave Argos as a fugitive. The chorus pleads with him to stay, since he's done a good deed. Orestes, however, sees a vision of his mother's, quote, rabid dogs coming after him, dripping with disgusting blood and pus, and runs away. The chorus is left wishing Orestes the best of luck. Thoughts and prayers! And wondering when the never-ending cycle of violence will end. The end. We're sitting with Dr. Andromache Karanika, who is an associate professor in the Department of Classics and has been a faculty member at UC Irvine for the last 14 years. Her work focuses on gender in antiquity. She published Voices at Work, Women, Performance, and Labor in Ancient Greece in 2014. She recently co-edited a volume entitled Emotional Trauma in Greece and Rome, Representations and Reactions. The first thing I, we kind of want to start talking about is the chorus. Um, especially because this is the second play installment in the Oresteia. And these two choruses between Agamemnon and the Libation Bearers are so different. Namely, there's an age difference and the gender difference between the two. And we kind of wanted to talk about those. Does the difference in gender and age imply a different role or expectation of a chorus? 
Uh, yeah, I think Aeschylus changes the, the way he uses his chorus throughout the Orestia. So in Agamemnon, indeed, as you said, he um, the chorus essentially are the elders of the city, and um, they are mostly kind of a commentary. They're onlookers to the uh, to the situation. They're not really as active. Now, what is dramatically different in the libation bearers? is that the chorus consists of slave women, some would say servant women, we can talk more about that, uh, but um, the, the women have a far more active role. I mean, they do advise Electra to pray to the gods for revenge through Orestes. So they're not just onlookers, they're not just, you know, uh, looking at the situation as outsiders, but they're very active. I mean, with Orestes. With Orestes, they seem to have a kind of a special bonding. So uh, the gender representation is quite amazing there. I think they're almost like anti-mothers, so to speak, because they encourage Orestes to go through with killing his mother, right? So we have his real mother and the the kind of pseudo-mothers that the chorus began. And there is a kind of a competition between the two. Can I so, say that I love that idea of the anti-mother because that's exactly what they are. Yeah, they're anti-mothers. Well, right. and, and Clytemnestra is in a certain way an anti-mother too, right? Because exactly. she um so there's all of this wonderful play with what what is a mother supposed to be and who is doing the mothering in among these female characters. Exactly. And the the notion of femininity is constructed and deconstructed at the same time. I mean, Clytemnestra very much acts like a man, so to speak, in the Agamemnon. But here, the anti-mothers, let's say, of the chorus, they are using gender representation in almost against their own gender. They're kind of masculinized themselves. So we have the chorus telling Orestes, you know, uh, stories about other women's treachery. So mythology is used to give him a kind of ammunition to, you know, for what he's going to do. So he, uh, they talk about um, other women like Scylla, who killed uh, her father, Nisus. So it's actually another interesting story of killing a father just when Orestes is about to kill the mother or the Limian women who killed their husbands. So these treacherous stories are used in a treacherous way. <laughs> and they're part of what, you know, the, the gender representation the chorus itself has. It's not at ease in a way with femininity. It's not at ease with motherhood. It goes in and out of it. I think what's happening is that Aeschylus is, in a way, the first of giving a more radical kind of uh, action to his chorus and his women. And that's something that will be followed through quite well by both Sophocles, even more by Euripides, and even arguably by the comic poets like Aristophanes. So the uh, idea that um, uh, the feminine sort of action is more effective or efficacious. You know, it's very much built in, and I think it's kind of heralded by uh, the libation of bearers uh, more than any other tragedy in Aeschylus. I think I, I kind of want to ask you earlier, you talked about the difference between, you know, you said slaves or servant women. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm curious to poke a little bit at that and... and, and what is the difference? 
what kind of clues do we have that it might be one or the other? I think there is enough references, uh, there are enough references to Troy that uh, we can safely assume that these are uh, women, slave women captured at Troy. And of course it makes sense given the background of the story. So they're not just servants that are taken from around uh, Mycenae or Argos or, you know, around the area, they are in a way foreigners, so to speak, and they have been enslaved. They are there against uh, their will. So to my mind, they are Trojan women, which makes it a more... um, uh, a more complex situation, how they kind of um, become sympathetic to the person who uh, essentially caused their, you know, lot, their right. their misery. Do they think they might have a better lot under Orestes? Because it, it seems very bizarre to me mm-hmm. that they would be partisans for Agamemnon when he was the one that, you know... Captured them. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. This is very bizarre indeed. Um, I mean, you can say that the this chorus is both very conservative... I mean, it's adhered to, you know, adheres to ritual, but it's also very radical and maybe even pragmatic. And so from that perspective, from a more pragmatic way, they move forward. I mean, they, they're they looking at Orestes as kind of their savior, so to speak. So these women now, by being so radical, I guess, in the way they approach the situation and by essentially stirring Orestes to, uh, to kill the tyrants, so to speak, they are making a path forward for themselves as well. So they do have a kind of a more pragmatic uh, approach. I want to look more at the portrayal of gender in the whole case. In particular, Clytemnestra is a fascinating character, both in the Agamemnon and here. And we pointed out that she uh, has the vision um, that makes her this sort of interesting anti-Cassandra kind of character. Um, But she also does some really interesting things like she sees right through the riddle of the dead killing the living and immediately calls for weapons because she realizes that Orestes isn't dead and he's come after her. Um, And this seems to really invert what happens with riddles in Greek tragedy a lot, where it's often people sort of dithering because they don't understand the riddling thing and then they end up getting killed. And Clytemnestra has a totally different reaction. She's very savvy. She seems to be able to see through any kind of mental gymnastics and yet also, you know, ends up being at the mercy of her son. So what's going on with, with her sort of gender portrayal here? If we think that the whole sort of trilogy at the end of the day is very much about justice, uh, the this specific sort of gender representation, the ambivalence that we have in Clytemnestra, I mean, she's not that ambivalent in Agamemnon, but here she is. She knows, I mean, she goes inside with Orestes. She knows that, you know, maybe her end is near. She senses it, at least, rather than knows. So, um, but she still asks for a weapon, though. <laughs> right, right, right. She she is ambivalent. I think she's an ambivalent character, and she's always she always has a masculine sort of a warrior side to her, mm-hmm. and so to the last sort of moment of her life, she never leaves the warrior side. What constitutes like what are some examples of feminine? Um, sort of traits versus masculine because we're obviously talking about what these traits mean and and how these characters are perceived and how that dictates how they might behave um and what are surprises so if you could give listeners some examples of 
what's a feminine trait versus a masculine trait in a character? So one of the more f- clearly uh, associated with uh, feminine behavior more in tragedy than in epic is lament. Uh, it's not that men do not lament, and there are specific differences about how men and women lament, but um, we we don't see Clytemnestra getting a lamenting tone at all. She's becoming in many ways like Agamemnon. She's getting a kind of, you know, the arrogance of Agamemnon. She's Agamemnonized, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Agamemnon is, I mean, he's being given to tragedy from epic, so to speak, and his epic representation is the epitome of arrogance. Uh, and uh, Clytemnestra in the Libation Bearers uh, she gets more of that. And we see that, fa- I mean, that is something that never flies well in Greek myth. So uh, she ultimately uh, she ultimately dies. And I think that's part of, you know, her arrogance is there somewhere to meet her at the corner. And uh, obviously <laughs> it's going to cause uh, the death. Okay. So, and this arrogance and hubris is a is a masculine is is in quality. the epic is more of a masculine quality, indeed. She's taking a masculine epic, so to speak, um, but in a, a characteristic, but in a twisted way, in in the extreme way, and in the extreme way that can only result in failure. But this is what makes tragedy. <laughs> this right. is what makes her appealing. Right. So it is the failure that makes her so such a uh, sort of a formidable character, so to speak. Right. And it's the breaking of of that gender expectation as well. Right. Of what right. we expect um, right. a right. woman to do. I mean, it even comes up in um in Agamemnon with like, well, the stabbing, she couldn't have stabbed because that's the thing that men do. Women don't stab and uh, which I think particularly now in 2020, that's a really interesting thing to discuss because our our understanding of gender has been busted wide open mm-hmm. um, and, and, and of gender expectations and our own biases. And so it's very interesting to, to look at such, such ancient texts and, and see what gender would have and the understanding of gender then would have dictated. The gender demand is that we um, don't quite have a need for revenge for the death of the woman as we do for the death of the man. Yeah, which is sort of fascinating because the whole trilogy is constructed on the sense of this duty of avenging the father. Right. But her killing Agamemnon to avenge the daughter seems to be a choice, but not a a duty. Right. Um, the, the, The Orestai is so much about justice, right? But to to do justice, to give justice, to make justice, I mean, and the Greek word is so complex because it can mean justice, but dike can mean justice, it can also mean revenge. It can also mean trial, all these things together. So to give justice or to bring justice doesn't necessarily mean that this is equated with acting justly. Speaking of some other interesting things that Aeschylus does, um, there's been a lot of scholarly debate about Pylades. And I, I'm sort of curious because I know that in general, there are only three speaking actors at any given time on the Greek stage. Um, Pylades is there constantly during the action with all of these various other actors and silent. And then suddenly 
when Orestes is going to kill Clytemnestra, we get the sort of final impetus and motivation from this short speech that Polides gives. I'm just wondering, um, is there anything important about the fact that uh, it is his friend at the last moment reminding him about Apollo that that finally decides him? Well, I think what Aeschylus is doing here, and again, it's a puzzle whether there is a fourth actor because he's there, he's silent, is that he wants to shock his audience. And he, uh, I mean, when we talk about silence, silence is present in, you know, many narratives and certainly in epic and in tragic narratives, but it's the moment that breaks the silence that shocks. Now, the fact that this coincides possibly with uh, also a break into dramatic convention, if indeed we have a fourth character, which seems to be a fourth actor playing that role, which seems to be quite plausible, even if, you know, we had the servant who spoke right before sort of changed suddenly to Pilades. That can also, I guess, work, but it's still a shock in a way that we have these just two sort of lines of uh, breaking the silence when Pilades uh, basically says, look, you know, you should count uh, all men, your enemies more rather than the gods. So, you know, he's urging him to follow Apollo's bidding. Um, so it could be that we have a kind of, uh, almost like a deus ex machina <laughs> there. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's not the usual convention, but I think Aeschylus is really breaking all conventions, both theatrical and psychological right there. Because essentially what Pilates is giving, which as you said, is what Chorus was giving him earlier, is this kind of sort of, uh, you know, inner wise bidding that you follow Apollo, not the man or not, you know, any hesitation of yours or any kind of uh, inner voice of yours. So in this way, uh, Pilates becomes the inner voice. I mean, I could imagine, I would love to, you know, play with this kind of uh, theatrically. I could imagine uh, even, you know, a member of the chorus kind of saying this line as Pilades, kind of, you know, quickly dressing up as Pilades, which would be brilliant if you think about it, because the kind of their their roles converge right now. But I think because he... uh, he is present, he is on stage as a silent character. Um, his uh, sort of his convergence with the chorus uh, right now is, is quite important because he is uh, the one who makes it happen. I mean, at this moment, if he had given a different answer, we would have a completely different play. <laughs> you know, the, the tragic element would have stopped there. He could have stopped it there if he had given a different bidding. I think we have a moment of honest hesitation by Orestes. And he wants that final sort of, you know, voice of somebody else to tell him what to do. And that somebody else at this point is Pilates. And uh, he knows that there will be consequences for it. Uh, he knows that all along, just as the chorus knows it all along. So they're always aware that, you know, they'll have to pay one way or the other. Another thing that uh, was really curious was the the Electra and Orestes recognition sequence. You know, Electra's uh, at the grave and she sees the hair, which she recognizes, and then the footprints, but then somehow doesn't recognize his face. 
I mean, it, it's a very, very specific thing to recognize a lock of someone's hair on the ground. Now, would Aeschylus's audience take this seriously? Or is it something, is it more wishful thinking? Is there, mm -hmm. there's something very comical to my 2020 brain when I, when I read that? Mm hmm I think there must have been something very comical to the fifth century brain. Okay, too, because <laughs> you, uh, uh, no, simply because Euripides probably made fun of that. I mean, there's parody in Euripides, so and Euripides seems to reject those Aeschylean sort of versions or, or tokens of recognition. So there's a scar there. Okay, <laughs> uh, so it's very different, but. I think in the in the context of Aeschylus, though, and his audience, and the way he kind of stages his audience, I think that audience would, and especially given the presence of ritual that we've been talking about earlier, and the ritual framework, ritual always demands something tangible. You know, you give an offering, right? right? This is a concrete thing that you do, that you present. So this notion of a token is so ingrained into how you perform ritual correctly that I don't think it would sound, it would be comical, let's say, in the context of the Aeschylean presentation, in the libation bearer. So it could be, I mean, yes, it is kind of incredulous, but in sort of the convention of uh, the theater, it can make sense. Okay. And also, the, I actually like that he... Orestes presents Electra with a handiwork of hers, mm -hmm. right? Something that she had woven, okay? So that's another sort of element. And that's also very Homeric too, the sort of female handiwork it comes back. I mean, it's a haunting element along with a cloth. Everything becomes very personalized. I mean, it, and if you think about it, it has to do with the body presence, of the mm -hmm. characters. I mean, the hair, the lock of the hair is, you know, a part of the body. And the thing that she uh, worked on is something that her hands actually touched and created. So there is a very sort of uh, raw element of body sort of physical presence there. I'm curious to know what's, um, what's your favorite translation, if you have one and why? Yeah, I think the one I would use in class more is Peter Meinex. And the reason I like it, it's very immediate. He puts theater together. <laughs> he knows how to do theater. So I think it's a translation that, um, you know, visually uh, it has some interesting moments, like it italicizes the choral part. I kind of always like that, you know. The, so the part that is supposed to be sung, that is more operatic in a way, in Aeschylus, uh, is kind of more distinctly put <laughs> in the text, and I like that. And I think he he puts stage directions, and that helps a lot. So he has the theatrical aspect more, uh, and I kind of appreciated that. Um, do you have a favorite line or scene or speech in the Oristia? Um Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the chorus talking about justice is <laughs> is like something you cannot, you know, you, you cannot live without in a way. And we definitely need it in our times as well. So uh, my favorite lines are um, from Agamemnon. Um, when, you know, he arrives on stage uh, with Cassandra and then the chorus sings, Justice shines her line on humble, uh, smoke-filled homes. They go on and on and then says, she has no respect for the power of wealth. 
So this notion of you know justice shining uh, is quite sort of uh, uh, amazing in the Agamemnon. That's followed in the libation bearers again, and this is when we have a line also by the chorus saying, "Justice screams and demands her price. Bloody blow pays bloody blow." So the doer suffers. Now that's Peter Meinig's translation there. It basically summarizes the play completely, bloody blow, base bloody blow, and the doer suffers. It's these sort of lines that capture the Oresteia, I think. Do you have a favorite play in the Oresteia? You know what? It's interesting. I We study Agamemnon more. So, and I like Cassandra a lot as a character. She's always, um, I mean, she's a foreigner, she's a captive, uh, she's, uh, I mean, she's a victim uh, all the way. So it's, it, it has always been kind of my favorite. But now, you know, reading back the libation bearers, <laughs> I'm like, I'm, you know, shifting my loyalty. <laughs> like, oh, I haven't read it in a while. I think the Agamemnon kind of, in teaching takes... Um, it gets the most airtime. It gets, yeah, it gets the airtime. You know, the Aristia seems to be a very challenging text for students. What's a reason you think it's a worthwhile text to read and to teach? I think precisely because it brings the theme of justice in its full complexity. Uh, and also kind of, not just the theme of justice, but also the evolution in a way, how you evolve as a human being, but also as a society. Uh, because it, it has all this movement from vedetta law and, you know, eye for eye, <laughs> you know, evil for evil, as it says somewhere. But then you, then it evolves and it evolves because society also evolves. And finally, we get to the court system of Athens. This has been really wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this again. Thank you, Sarah. This was great for me. Chill is made possible by Illuminations at the University of California, Irvine. Special shout out to Julia Lupton, our forever queen, Phil and Katie Friedel for their incredible generosity, and special thanks to Vinnie Oliveri, who knows all the things and pointed us in the right direction. <laughs>